Cannonballs. We are back. I'm Gemma Kaneko, alongside Ben Cosman. Hi, Ben. Hi, Gemma. How are you? I'm all right, you know. Uh, in honor of the month of February, which is generally the month of romance, we're reading all novels about questionable romantic relationships. We're kicking it off with two episodes on everyone's favorite high school English reading, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Joining us is Sarah Kuhn, who's actually the only person I've ever met who liked reading this book in high school, but who also knows a lot about romance. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm actually, I really had never, ever spoken to anyone who loved the book. And you said you liked it because it kind of like fed all of your appetites. Oh, totally. I was, I was into anything that was about illicit sex in high school. (laughs) Um, having none of my own yet. (laughs) And then also, um, I felt like immensely smart and able to like unlock all the not so hidden messages now that I'm reading it. Like how did not everyone not get the messages in this book? But, um, my high school... The high school junior, Sarah Kewen, was felt really satisfied <laughs> by it overall. Well, it's time to revisit it now as adults. Now, as usual, we did a scouting report for this book before we went into it. Ben's never read it. He went to the only high school in America where they don't <laughs> teach it. I read it in 10th grade, but I remember hating it. Um, so we'll do our categories. As always, we do a 20 to 80 scale because baseball, you know, just go with it. Um, I know that since you're here, you may not be world's biggest sports fan, but that's what it is. Uh, with our first category, we have classicness, which on average we gave an 80. Um, so I guess we all think this is a pretty classic novel. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's heard of it. Everyone understands immediately what the Scarlet Letter stands for. And is, I think. Yeah. I mean, like you said, everyone in high school but me has read this book. <laughs> yeah, so. astonishingly. Um, for accessibility, on average, we gave it a 40. Some of us went higher. Some of us went lower. I think I went the lowest, like with a 35. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how you guys felt about it, but I, I had remembered reading it in high school and being like, ugh, yeah. <laughs> these sentences. Yeah, Hawthorne is very uh, long-winded, um, but I think my rating, I think it was like a 50 or 55 before I read this. Um and that was mostly because I think almost accessibility is uh, um, it sort of goes down as the classicness goes up mm-hmm. um, because these classic books, particularly the Scarlet Letter, have like they take on these reputations that are like I don't want to read this stodgy old book that's going to tell me not to have sex. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that dissuades people from reading. Yeah, oh. the language itself is I think really inaccessible, um, despite there being like footnotes which are helpful, but. Um, in reading it this time, I was like, why is there a footnote for the word fantastic? Not for (laughs) words like behoove and things like that. There's a footnote in yours for fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I clicked it because I was like, I got to know what fantastic means that I don't already know. And it means what you think it means. (laughs) (laughs) That's so condescending and amazing from the, whoever did the footnotes. Um, next category is pop culture influence, which on average we gave a 75, which is pretty high, I would say, for something that... You really, we did Pride and Prejudice last, and that has so much pop culture influence. And whereas, like, when you think of this book, when I think of the pop culture around it, there are a lot of, like, that there was that Demi Moore adaptation. Oh, man, which I got immediately after <laughs> finishing this book. Well, it has that, like, weird sex scene in it. Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. But then I guess there's, like, Easy, easy A. Easy A, yeah. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, why yeah. I gave it my rating. And I also saw, I gave it the high rating just because of its its classicness in the sense that, like, you can reference it in basically any pop culture and people will be like, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for humor, we gave it a 35. Um, ben and I went pretty low, but Sarah, you went much higher. You gave it a 60, <laughs> which I think is interesting. So why did you do that? I think, I mean, I feel like, I said it was funny, but the book is not in on the joke. <laughs> so I feel like anytime something is as self-aware as this book is, 
it's funny to me because it's just taking itself so seriously. And um, also the names. Just like anything, the fact that um, I like to think like Hawthorne was maybe writing it and thinking he was so clever. And just like (laughs) everything is an easy read in it in terms of knowing what he means by the names he calls people or the metaphor that he's creating and like the baby pearl. It just is just like so easy to read. (laughs) So that's funny to me as well. I think, honestly, reading it, I I side more with you. I would bump my score up because I find this book very funny. I don't know why. <laughs> I am delighted. I laugh out loud at sentences in this uh, book this is, more than almost any book we've read on this, this podcast. Is, I think I, I gave it a 20. Like, I went real low because I, again, high school, bad experiences, whatever. But my, my read now is that he's just really satisfied with himself, and it's so annoying. I find it so funny. Like, he's, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but he's being really smug about how stuck up the Puritans are and, like, mm-hmm. they have no capacity for mercy it's like you're also really smug about your own morals though mm-hmm. like come on man <laughs> it's like the kind of funny that makes you groan not the kind of funny yeah. that's like yes i love this joke you're like yeah. no come on but yeah he does have some good jokes though he has a couple good jokes <laughs> on the puritans that i appreciate it uh our last category is relevance and we gave it a 65 i think i went the highest on this and you two went a little bit lower i wasn't really the relevance was a little bit harder for me because i feel like it could be a category like classicness or or pop culture influence. I wasn't really sure in terms of relevance, like relevant to what mm-hmm. what I was reading. Um, I always think of it as like relevant to a modern reader, like to the modern conversation that we have today in our lives, which is why I went higher for it. Just because I I do think there is something in here about just like constantly judging other people, and there's mm-hmm. a reason it resonates so much, especially mm-hmm. now and all the various conversations we're having about who is, like, secretly a sinner. Like, there's this one... I, I didn't remember this at the time, but I was like, oh, this is about someone who does a bunch of bad things. But I had I had thought, like, there is also a secret sinner in the book. And now there's a lot of uh, uh, emphasis on people in the world, like, people in the workplace who have covered up all of their secret sins. So mm-hmm. maybe it's relevant in that way. Things yeah. are coming out and emblazoned on your chest now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I would agree with that. I mean, you give the, uh, the woman... Um, uh, Hester, who is you know overtly punished, and then you have the man, the the man she had the affair with, who she refuses to give up. Basically, uh, just historically, men are trash. My, my, <laughs> my typical, my typical uh, feelings about all things. Um, all right, so that was a scouting report. Ben, why don't you give us a character breakdown? Yeah, so we actually don't have that many characters in this book. Yeah, uh, we have Hester Prynne, who is our uh, the a woman in 1600s puritanical. Salem, Massachusetts, uh, who has an affair out of wedlock and is forced to wear the titular scarlet letter affixed to her chest. Uh, Pearl Prynne is Hester's daughter, born of the affair, and as Hawthorne continually reminds us, the living, breathing version of the scarlet letter. Oh, is she wearing a <laughs> scarlet dress for some reason? <laughs> uh, Arthur Dimsdale is the young, youngish minister of Hester's congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ron, Roger Chillingworth is a weird-looking old guy who was held captive by Native Americans and... Oh, yeah, like, he's just also Hester's British husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Bellingham seems to be in charge of Salem. Uh, there's some other old dudes, a couple other pastors, uh, the angry, judgmental townspeople. Mm-hmm. That's basically it. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, it. There is Governor, Governor Bellingham's sister, who sister. is a witch. Hissed. Yeah. Hissed. <laughs> <laughs> which I feel like which is, like, like, one of the... Like, I didn't remember talking about that much in high school, but it's, like, one of the most hypocritical things I can think of in the book, of the people being hypocritical, you know? Yes. That this woman, like, lives in the stately governor's house, just, like, 
hissing at people from her window. <laughs> she's a literal she, witch too. She she's does like, invite Hester to like, like making go, plans. Yeah, yeah. Like, meet up in meet the forest. Satan in the forest. Yeah, hist, hist, hey girl, you want to go to the Satan witch party? Like it's gonna yeah. be awesome. I, I and no one's like book. put her in the center of town <laughs> and throw tomatoes on her. I know. Yeah. Uh, should I do a plot summary? Yeah. Give so us a plot. we've uh, we're only covering chapters one through ten. Uh, and also the custom house, which is the 45-page oh. <laughs> introduction, um, which Hawthorne... So Hawthorne uses the custom house uh, introductory chapter to explain how he discovers the actual scarlet letter, like the actual piece of material, cloth, or whatever it is, um, in the Salem custom house where he works, uh, which inspires him to write the story we're reading. The actual story opens with Hester in prison, which, by the way, is like, right next to the cemetery or in the cemetery or something Somewhere like that. near it, yeah. Uh, uh, but she's in prison for having an affair out of wedlock, uh, from which she has given birth to a daughter, Pearl. Uh, Hester is forced to walk from the prison through town with her child and the, uh, you know, again, titular scarlet letter sewn onto her clothes so that all the townspeople can jeer at her, I guess, uh, like a public shaming. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then she has to stand atop these, like, gallow-like structures. Yeah, it sounds um, like where they would put people in stocks. Stocks, yes, yeah. the stocks. Uh, exactly. Uh, so she's up there receiving her punishment, which is, you know, the judgment of the town. Uh, she catches the eye of a strange man at the edge of the crowd, who ends up being Roger Chillingworth. Hester is sent back to prison, where Chillingworth visits her, and we, where we learn uh, that he is her estranged British husband, whom everyone has presumed dead. Uh, and he would like to. He decides he would like to keep it that way, lest he be tainted by Hester's adultery. Mm. Which you know, solid, solid move, dude. Uh, real, real brave. You got a whole lot to say about him. Let me tell you that. Uh, he saws out. And then we we flash forward a few years. Uh, Hester is shunned from the town, so she and Pearl set up home on the edge of it. I think, but she's still uh, apparently she's an exceptional uh, an exceptional hand at embroidery. So of course the townspeople still buy her wares because. No capitalism was craving even back in. <laughs> she can't <laughs> embroider veils though. No bridal. Right, right, no right, right, right. It's not allowed. Um, yeah. But then Chilling uh, Chillingworth becomes interested in Arthur Dimsdale, the aforementioned minister, uh, who Dimsdale apparently has been sick for like three years, literally. Um, yeah. Weird, <laughs> weird coincidence. <laughs> and, uh, allegedly, the townspeople at first think Chilling Chillingworth will heal Dimsdale, but then they immediately become convinced that uh, Chillingworth is actually a servant of Satan. Totally. Uh, yeah, and, because he is. <laughs> and I guess that's where we leave it. I yeah. guess, I mean, Hester visits Governor Bellingham to, you know, plead that they don't take Pearl away from her. But other than yeah. that, nothing has really happened. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. good. That's my plot summary. That's a yeah. good plot summary. Yeah, that's pretty much what happens in the first ten chapters. Um, so let's let's break it down a little bit. First of all, let's talk about <laughs> the narrator's voice. So it starts with the custom house, which is just Nathaniel Hawthorne. He also spends like three paragraphs, like long paragraphs at the beginning, being like, I don't usually talk about myself, but you know, one day I'll be dead and you won't know who I am or my friends. So let me just take the <laughs> second to just talk about myself for 45 pages. And he writes this whole opening thing, the custom house, which is about this time that he had to work as a custom surveyor, which is like a government-appointed patronage office that you just give to your friends so they can make money doing nothing, and how somehow this inspired his story. But actually, mostly, it's just him talking shit about people who he worked with <laughs> in the custom house. So that's our first introduction to him as a narrator. Like, what does that do for you, and how does it frame the story, Ben? Because you liked the beginning. I, so I, really... I was like, oh, this is like the Olaf short in front of Coco. Like, it needs to end immediately. <laughs> I believe when I first set to read this book, I texted you, and I said... Do we really have to read this 45-page introductory chapter? Yes. And then I read it and immediately loved it. <laughs> I Because I think it is very funny that Hawthorne just 
takes this chapter. It has only a cursory relevance to the actual story of the Scarlet Letter, but it is. It's just him talking shit and name dropping. <laughs> yes. He talks to whoever he works with and then name drops all the trends and uh, uh, all the other writers like Thoreau and Emerson that he uh, that he knows. He mentions Louisa May Alcott, who we've read before. Um, but it's weird because having, you know, getting through this introductory chapter and then starting the actual Scarlet Letter, you realize that it's it almost seems like Hawthorne had two ideas. He had the idea for the Scarlet Letter, and then he also wanted to write this screed about the creative process. <laughs> because he spends most of it just complaining about how he knew he there was an idea when he discovered the Scarlet Letter, when the letter A. Um, Which, that's totally bullshit. That has right. to be bullshit. Oh, yeah. This is not not <laughs> yeah. real. Yeah. Um, he, he's, you know, he talks about how he has this idea, but he doesn't have any time to write about it because he has this onerous three-and-a-half-hour-a-day <laughs> job. Uh, oh, but yeah, it's, that's yeah, the he, worst part. He mostly wants to explore the act of writing and then, I guess, provide us an example with a story he's written. It's very strange. It is very mm. strange. But I do think there's one moment in it when he's talking about how the very first Hawthorns who came to um, America would be disappointed in him. They'd be like, oh, look at this turd who just, like, complains all day and writes books. What a loser. Because they're, like, judges and fighters and etc. But he also doesn't like them very much. And in fact, historically, he is related to a lot of, to one of the men who was responsible for the Salem Witch Trials and, like, a lot of those trials and, and deaths. Mm. And he intentionally added the W to his name to distance himself from that specific ancestor because he didn't want to be known as a relative of someone who killed a bunch of women in the Salem Witch Trials. So I actually think that is kind of important as we go into the story and his ideas of mercy specifically towards women and like a Puritan morality mm. that he seems to be definitely judging like from a winky winky like look at these like dumbasses and how they didn't know better in those days or how that they really like cl- cleaved to this morality so I think that is important to know going in yeah I mean yeah. I think the introductory chapter deals with sort of posterity and reflecting on it but then also rejecting it mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Which I think I imagine would be will be important. Yes, in the actual story. Yes. Also um, related to him finding the Scarlet A, like that is obviously <laughs> a lie. But also in my book, they note uh, that uh, Hawthorne's own mother had her first child out of wedlock oh, and was very oh, harshly wow. judged. So that's sort of interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah, that it's makes personal. sense. Yeah, um, he does. I mean, I also Hawthorne just has some good zingers about politics in this section, <laughs> where he he talks about the uh, the Taos people and how there's. Little to disturb them except the periodical terrors of a presidential election. Which, <laughs> no, true. Especially like patronage was a big thing, and you get all right. these judges, and then like four years later, you're out of the job, whatever. I like at the end, he's like, "Oh, politics don't really matter to Democrats because we win all the time, right. so we'll like leave wigs in office." But then a wig wins, and he loses his job after he just complained about how stupid the job was for like thirty pages, and he's like, "And then I got fired, which they d- d- didn't deserve because I was great at the job." Anyway, like, come right. on, man. Right, like the election of Zachary Taylor is this huge yeah. calamity for him. Yeah, even though he allegedly doesn't care. Okay, sure, whatever. Anyway, now that we know who Hawthorne is, we jump into the book, um, and I just want to start with symbolism, because the very first thing we see is, like, the red rose bush mm-hmm. growing outside of the prison, mm-hmm. and then the scarlet letter. Like, this book is taught, I think, so widely in high school English because the symbolism is there right on the surface. So mm-hmm. what symbols stand out to you at first? Like, what really sticks in your mind? Um... There's this thing that Hester has to wear around on her dress, a scarlet letter. <laughs> so definitely that, but probably um, mostly because this is something that I just read, but um, later on in the book when it talks about uh, Chillingworth and kind of like the 
the medicines that he's making for Dimsdale, he talks about getting um, a certain ingredient that grows from the weed of this oh, grave yeah. as if it like were a secret that this man had taken. It's an unmarked grave. It like grows. He's never seen this plant before and he imagines it's like a secret that this person had taken to their grave and it's growing from kind of like their black heart or something. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like what we find out definitely connecting to Dim- to Dimsdale and like kind of selling him out in a big way. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, yeah, that's interesting to think about like even plants in this book because... Chillingsworth is an alchemist who comes to this town basically masquerading as a physician. Like, he Mm -hmm. doesn't have a medical degree, but he's like, I might as well because I know so much (laughs) about medicine. Yeah. Uh, So there's plants, and there's also the red rose bush that's growing by the prison. And when um, they're thinking about taking Pearl away from Hester, they ask her, like, who made you? And she's like, no one made me. Mm -hmm. I was picked off a rose bush. So... Mm Is, I wonder if there's something about, like, the world of nature that's much more unruly than the world of man and doesn't conform to those kinds of laws or, like, can reveal you or can screw you over in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, Pearl's name itself is, like, something beautiful made from, like, this, like, hard circumstance, mm-hmm. this, like, unhappy circumstance, and here comes something beautiful and otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I kept thinking about, and this is, you know, just who I am, I guess, uh, the fact that embroidery and, like, the act of, like, the actual A, stitch onto Hester's dress, but then also the fact that the townspeople continue to buy her embroidered mm-hmm. fabrics or whatever, uh-huh. um, or they send their things to be embroidered by her and then um, and then uh, get them back. And I just, I don't know. I, it seems to me, I, I mean, I don't think Hawthorne was actually writing it, this critique, but it's, like, how... So they've shunned her totally from the town. Like they don't want nothing to do with her society. Like they think she's, you know, Satan. Like she's been <laughs> possessed by the devil. She's sin incarnate. Um, but then they keep buying things from her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That just, you know. I feel like I feel like the townspeople buying her embroidery is like the, it's like the puritanical tabloid. Right. It's like <laughs> Hester Princess Weekly. Right. <laughs> um, and the fact that I, there was a there's a really good chapter where Hester wonders. Um, about everyone else's sin, like the fact that she has to wear her sin on the outside of her clothes, but then no one else has to. Um, but then she's sort of, there's this idea of this uh, hidden sin, mm. and I think we get that with Dimsdale and Chillingworth at the end of the section we read. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, literally, Bellingham's sister yelling, hissed, hissed, out <laughs> the window, do you want to come to the devil party I'm going to later tonight? That, I was like, what? This is so overt. It's not even, the, the chapter when she thinks that, like, because of the letter, she, like, gets the burning in her chest when she makes eye contact with someone who's, like, a walking saint. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, no, that can't be real. Like, they can't be a sinner. And they probably are. I mean, I've read a lot about Puritan times because it interests me. And I've read a lot of, like, sociological whatever. And I, it's like, yeah, all these people were just doing the worst things all the time where textually they have this idea that you have to be, like, a living saint to be in the church. It's mm-hmm. a real phrase. But all the court cases from the time are just like, so-and-so stole this, so-and-so is publicly drunk, so-and-so is adulterous, and we all know, because we live in these tiny garbage houses, that there's only one bed, so you just know if someone's <laughs> banging someone they're not supposed to be banging. Like, this person was mean, this person beat me. There's this whole case where this guy, like, had sex with a turkey, and they were like, well, gotta kill both of them, guy and the turkey. Like, these are things. Jesus Christ. Yeah. All what are you reading? does that happen in the book? I know. It doesn't happen in the book. It did happen in Puritan times, though. So this idea that these people, because of their strict moral code, were pure. I think Hawthorne is saying, like, they were not better than any of us. They just shoveled it under a little bit better. Yeah. I, I, some are related to that. 
Uh, and actually, back to what we were talking about with the introduction, I wonder what Hawthorne is doing with children in this book. Because you have Pearl on one hand, which is, um, you know, she is the embodiment of Hester's sin. But then you have all, there's a couple scenes with the Puritan children. Mm-hmm. And basically Hawthorne just makes them up to be these mean uh, bullies the whole time. Like mm-hmm. petty bullies who like, just tease uh, Pearl. And then Pearl picks up rocks and throws them at them, <laughs> yeah, which I, I appreciate. That. And I thought that was yeah. really funny. Um, but, and, and sort of going back to the idea of what do we learn from previous generations and then what do we pass on to the next generation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is the most one of the most interesting most one of the most interesting aspects of this book for me. Yeah, I think he is very interested in that. Uh, so we talked about the devil a little bit, but now let's like really talk about <laughs> the devil. Um, so this is a society that believes in magic. Clearly, mm-hmm. is magic in the world of this book real? Is the governor's sister really genuinely a witch? No, <laughs> I don't think so. I was okay. going to say yes. <laughs> I was no. going to say yes, too. Like, right. Yeah, why do you yeah, think Yeah, yes? I think she's totally a witch. Um, <laughs> like a witch that we, as we would define one, or a witch as the townspeople would define it? I mean, like, I think she goes into the forest and maybe takes off her dress and, like, you know, there's blood and stuff and, like, she's a witch. I think the devil things. is there. Like, I think in the world of this book, the devil is a person you can just call. I mean, but... Because I think Chillingsworth is definitely, like... Like, I think there's real magic happening in this book. Do you think the townspeople are are right about Chillingsworth? Yes, I do. How harder... How much harder can you telegraph it? He gets more misshapen, and suddenly, like, he he went from looking kind of nice <laughs> to suddenly looking like a walking devil? Like, no. So much of that also feels like someone's projection onto him. Do you right. know what I mean? Like, not... Okay. It's like, I... Tell know. me you don't think he's the villain of this story. I don't. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, no. I think he's like this grizzly. I don't. I don't know. I don't care. He's definitely like a him. gargoyle. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. But I don't think he's like villain number one. Oh, they, man. they make I a big deal about his shoulders one. being off kilter. Yeah, yeah, which I think is offensive. <laughs> it definitely is. But like they set it up that he says something uh, where he's like, "I'm gonna find out who the father is." Like I found gold. Like I made found gold in alchemy, which is sorcery. But yeah. Like, at the time, like, that's, that's not, like, a cool, normal thing to do. I mean, do. he says that, right, though? Like, do we believe him? I think oh, he's... yeah, I mean, but, okay, also, I think, I'm pretty sure at the end of this section... Yeah, he, I, I want to ask you about that, because I have yeah. no idea what it is. Well, like, he, he's, like, hanging out with Dimsdale in the house, and they have this whole conversation about hidden secrets, and it's very obvious to everyone that Dimsdale has a secret. Mm. And then Dimsdale falls asleep, just, like, luckily, thank you, plot. Because <laughs> he t- he's not eating anything. Yeah, because he's... <laughs> He takes off part of Dimsdale's shirt and sees something on his chest. And that thing that he sees makes him go like, oh, my God. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like there's there's some it's kind of brand. light magic going on in this book. Yeah, maybe. I see. I I kind of got the vibe. Well, A, I think Chillingworth, I mean, he's a shitty dude. Because uh-huh. the first thing we meet him is he shows up. He's Hester's husband. I mean, I'm sure they're legally still married somewhere. Um, and the first thing he says is, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna pretend I'm, I don't know you at all because I don't want to be tainted by your, <laughs> your reputation here. But I just, I, so we read Bleak House, which is yeah. considered like a prototypical detective novel. Uh-huh. That's what I get from this book, kind of, and Chillingsworth, at least in the beginning, where his deal is he's trying to figure out who Hester had the affair with. Which, you know, <laughs> not the most noble cause of a detective. But also, but- like, there's no... There's only one suspect, and you read one chapter, and you're like, right. who could it be? We know who it is, but the townspeople do. <laughs> right. no. But, like, that's not a whodunit. No, no. I mean, 
I don't. I, it, I guess you. Yeah, you're right. I guess. <laughs> okay, I'm like developing a thought as I speak, but I'm like, I feel like there is magic, and there definitely is a devil because you can't. Because there was when it was written. Do you know what I'm saying? Does Hawthorne so, believe in the devil? Though? I don't I think don't Hawthorne know. does, but I think this is like a folktale. You know, like the devil in Daniel Webster? Yeah. Where he there's he has to get in a debate with the actual devil? Like, I think it is to some degree folklore like that. But anyway, mm. continue with your point, Sarah. Well, I, I mean, you might, have, you might have just made it when you said that <laughs> Hawthorne doesn't believe in the devil. But, but they do. The townspeople do. Right. I mean, for, for a book that, whether or not, it's definitely satire. It's definitely, like, social commentary. But even still, every character of the book is so aligned with this kind of, like, Christian, moralistic rigidity that I feel like, of course, the devil exists and he's, like, the number one consequence or else why do we have to imprison this woman and... Because of, like, God's law or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also think, like, there's this moment when she looks in Pearl's eyes and she's like, I see a different face looking back at me out of her pupil. Which is like... Oh, yeah. A hallucination, sure. But maybe also it's just... I mean, they, the call, devil? they say yeah. she's like a little imp. I maybe, feel like yeah. people are always on the fence of whether she's like a human or a demon yeah. herself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of fun. I mean, I do think that it has mm. some of those... Because he was writing at a time of great American folklore stories. Like... Yeah, we all know none of these things are real. Like, I guess. If, sorry if you really think the devil's going to come hang out with you, if that's the thing you want. But <laughs> I think for the purpose of the, like, moralistic aspect of the story, the devil is real. Yeah. And, like, in as much as, like, Dimsdale is for sure torturing himself, you also, like, the same way that this, like, weird weed grows out of this grave, you want to feel like there's something festering, like, under the surface. It's the judgment, it's the guilt, and I think that has a lot of the magic in the book. I'm gonna I'm gonna get real, uh, you know, high school English on you okay, right okay. now. Uh, I'm gonna like my question is: Does it matter? Like, is Hawthorne making the point that we create the devils we want to see? Like, is the are the townspeople manifesting the devil in Chillingsworth or in mm. Hester or in Pearl because that's what they believe and that's what they want to find and like those are the answers they're seeking? Um, and whether or not it is, it's actually real is is that Hawthorne's point? Well, having read the book, I feel like I shouldn't answer that with only the knowledge of the first ten chapters. Okay. Yeah. You know? uh, maybe... You gotta put, it, put a pin in it. Well, only because I, I actually think that that is <clears throat> maybe a... I think that idea actually doesn't get that much more developed after this part uh, in the book. Okay. Because um, I, I, I think it it is kind of overtly psychological after that, but I think in terms of like... Who are these characters supposed to represent in broad strokes? Uh, I don't want to ruin anything, so I will not keep talking about it. Um, But I think in the last chapter when Dimsdale and Chillingsworth have that conversation, like, what is that? how, how, How much do you glean from that as a reader? Like, in terms of just putting aside the supernatural, like, what kind of information they're getting to each other, giving to each other? I wasn't so I when I finished this chapter and I'm I almost wish we read through chapter eleven for this section <laughs> because I, I immediately was like Oh but I'm, what a good cliffhanger. He it takes was a off good the shirt and it's like, gasp, what's under the shirt? Also, why are you such a weird creep that you're undressing your friend while yeah. he's sleeping? It's his patient. It's he's allowed very, to do that. <laughs> The, yeah, the Wait, boundaries what, are crossed in that relationship. What kind of doctor do you see that <laughs> while you're sleeping, they randomly examine you without permission, Ben? True. You need a new GP. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know what to glean from that section because I have, like, we go from, 
uh, Chillingsworth, you know, real heavy-handed metaphor of the plants in the cemetery mm-hmm. to Dimsdale passing out because he's you know, <laughs> has scurvy probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably it. He's like in his closet whipping himself. And- <laughs> um. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I it. I took it as a con. Like, obviously, it's Dimsdale's unwitting confession. But I don't. I don't know what we're supposed to think about Chillingworth in that section, other than he's creepy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Hawthorne does give us a clue though in calling him the leech. Yeah, I right. feel like that's pretty. Like, whether or not you you discern that this person's like motives are truly evil or whatever they are, you know that he's somehow sucking some life force out of someone and getting all of his, like, his power, maybe his pride, his, like, nor- notoriety, like, from someone else. Hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah I, I did wonder about those chapter titles. I, <clears throat> that's interesting. I think that does help us figure out sort of what Chillingsworth's deal is. But, Ben, as someone who's never read this book, what do you think is under the shirt? I, am, I imagine some sort of, like... <laughs> A burned in flesh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good guess. Yeah. I mean, considering the title of the book, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is my guess. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a big mole. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's what it is—a tattoo. Actually, yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's just a really bad tattoo. <laughs> it's an industrial tattoo where it's just a cutaway of Dimsdale's heart. Oh, you it's got real, a tribal sign. Yeah, it's, it's real really. <laughs> barcode (laughs) he is a young he is a young preacher uh okay so that's the first half of the book um let's just go back to symbolism real quick we talked about the leech we talked about the a we talked about plants is there anything we're missing is there any also i feel like this is a book in which if you really wanted to you could invest symbolism in basically anything Mm -hmm. so is there anything that you does that change the experience of how you read it like is this different than reading a book that maybe is a little bit lighter on the symbolism shaker I, I think it is, like you said, I think it reads more like a parable than an, I don't know, work of literature? I guess parables are literature, but it reads more more like a parable than a novel, I will say. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, I feel like in, when I read it in high school, and Sarah, maybe you felt this way too, it was like, oh, what, well, let's decode this. What does this thing mean? Totally. It's all like a puzzle solving. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like I said, like that was like part of my experience of liking the book, <laughs> is that when my teacher asked the questions, I felt, oh, I know this answer every time. And now I'm like, was I that smart? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think it it makes me take it less literally. I don't mm-hmm. know. Like, I don't, I don't... I find myself paying less attention to the plot, even though there really hasn't been that much plot and, like, literal action that people are doing. Like, Hester Hester hasn't really done anything in this book. Except just, like, self-torture. Like, everyone. Right. The, yeah. The self-pity and, and the guilt is alive so hard. Yeah. I will say I do not buy his reason that she didn't just peace out, because it was a time of no social security numbers or electronic records or anything. And if she wanted to just move somewhere and throw the A in the trash, she totally could have yeah. done that. Right. That's the most pitiful part of the book. I mean, I think he acknowledges that she doesn't move because she's in love. And that is what I feel like. Someone yeah. who kind of, like, took the podium in the town's, t- the center of town or whatever, was such, like, um, just kind of, like, throwing it in people's face. You right. know what I mean? Um, I don't feel like she cowered at all when she had to go through her, like, public shaming. And she definitely has a lot of, like I said, like, guilt and all of those. She just, like, self-flagellates all the time. Mm -hmm. But, like, I think really he told us that she doesn't go because she's in love. Ah. And she has this kind of, like, really romanticized vision of, like, 
even if we're not together in life, we will be in the next life because we have this baby that we've made and it like connects us. And so she stays in the place where like this baby's father is. But I hate, I also hate that because (laughs) I feel like she otherwise is pretty strong. Yeah. Yeah. I did not even think of that idea. And I'm really glad that you said that. Yeah. I think that's, so I think it goes right into one of my biggest questions in this book is that why hasn't Hester given the guy up? I guess because she knows what will happen and she wants to protect him from that. She's noble. Yeah. Yeah. I I respect it. It's not what I would do. No. Also, I mean, obviously, if he wants to come forward himself, he has the choice to do that. And he's not because he is a huge baby. And it just gives you permission (laughs) to hate him so much more. For knowing and knowing how she doesn't give him up ever. And, like, doesn't ever really seem to hate him either. My question is, do you think people would believe her? Maybe not. That's well, a good point. Probably depends, not. Depends how much magic is involved. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is why, like, I think that comes, like, this is one of the most relevant parts of the book to me now, is that the idea of Hester were to reveal who the man is, would people, like, what is the townspeople's reaction? Mm. That, I'm curious to see. That'll be fun. Uh, so let's move on to the last part of our podcast, The Die of Death. Uh, I should call it The Devil this time because there's so much of the devil. I, I just genuinely think that Chillingsworth is possessed by the devil. Like, that's just what I think. Definitely he, a henchman. He's, yeah, he's at least supposed to be like a big sign, po- like in the in the thing. Like he has a, his cards as like the devil. Like, that's yeah. who he represents. Um, so in this game, we roll a die and we play one of six games. Those games are who dies slash who bangs. I guess we kind of already know who banged, but... Uh, maybe someone else will bang. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, wow, this got racist or sexist. Who goes Nazi? Pitch the bad, gritty reboot. Share a little of your favorite fanfic, or would you rather? So Sarah, you are guest, so I will let you go first. Okay. Please roll. You got four. Pitch the bad, gritty reboot. So you can make this like as Netflix series as as you want. You can make it even crazier than that. Whatever. Whatever you think the modern reboot of the story would be. Okay. Not the Easy A reboot. Not Easy A. We already had the modern reboot. That is an ugly reboot. Yeah. Can I I pitch one? Please. So I have, I envision a John Wick-esque reboot (laughs) where Hester is, you know, affixed with her scarlet letter and banished from the town and then she goes on a murderous rampage to seek vengeance on everyone who cast down uh, on her. Uh, a Kill Bill-esque. Yeah, reboot. exactly. That yeah. sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds I just so gotta think good. of a name and then I'll pitch it somewhere. Ah, <laughs> uh, just call it Prin. Right. And that's just her name. Oh. No Hester, just Prin. Prin. And then the movie Done. poster is an A written in blood. Oh, oh, yeah! That's so good! That's so good. That's, yeah, that's my agreement. Yeah, I really love that. Alright, well Ben, why don't you roll and if Sarah likes your game more, she can I'm play sorry. it. Right. No, that's fine. That's good. Two is what? Two is... Is it who bangs? Wow, this got racist or sexist. Oh, oh okay. You yeah, want to talk about that? Definitely a wow, this got sexist. It was basically the whole chapter about needlepoint for me. <laughs> and the whole, the narrators aside, like, um, it's still a mystery to the man what draws the woman to needlepoint, oh, but yeah. boy, do women love it. I wrote that down too. Like, you don't understand what it's like to accomplish something? <laughs> like, screw you. Your giant dumb hands from surveying everything. Yeah. Just, like, everything, I mean, he, like, praised it in terms of, like, Hester was so great at it and she made such beautiful things, but then also just, like, totally made it, like, menial and, like, tedious and just kind of like, oh, you little lady, pat on the head kind of thing. So rude. And that whole weird section at the beginning when the, like, Harrodin women are 
complaining about Hester mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. square. He's like, women then were strong and coarse and not like today's ladylike <laughs> women who know when to shut up in public. Oh, infuriating. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess this whole book is also built on a pretty sexist concept. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, though, I'm going to roll, but I have a question to ask you, Sarah. As someone who knows of the romances and likes romance, <laughs> is this a romance? I think it's, like, definitely an unrequited romance. Mm. You know Interesting. What I mean? And I feel like, I feel like the fact that our star-crossed lovers are young and beautiful is romantic tendency as well. It's, like, they're, like, really, like, romantic heroes in that sense. That people want them. It's commented about how beautiful they are or um, good-natured or they, she makes beautiful things. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like that is definitely, like straight out of a romance oh for sure yeah when i was uh looking for fanfic i found a bunch of fan mixes like people just made playlists about oh, wow. this book. <laughs> um and there is a lot of like fallout boy nice. and like it was it was pa- <laughs> panic the disco nice. like uh that that halsey song that's like i've found a lover and it's his name is religion or something like that that's not the, it's nicer <laughs> but it's about how like i love this person as much as people love religion and i was like okay on the nose but like i get it <laughs> i know what you're doing here teens making fan mixes for Scarlet Letter. <laughs> Do you think people ship uh, Scarlet Letter characters? I mean, I I I should have looked harder because I bet you there's some Chillingsworth Dimsdale fan fiction uh, out there. I was thinking Chillingsworth and uh, the Devil, the Witch, Bellingham's <laughs> uh, Bell- sister. Oh uh, yeah, are, are they one and the same? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they are. All right, I am rolling. It is now my turn to play. Um, I also got uh, two, so you know. We'll talk about the racism. There, I, I have my a, chance. There's some racism stuff with the yeah. I actually, Native American. I actually do want to talk yeah. about that because he gets so Chillingsworth is allegedly kidnapped by the natives, which is a thing that happened. Like mm-hmm. ca- captives were ransomed back. Sometimes they didn't want to come back because who wants to starve with a bunch of Puritans when you can starve in the woods, or sometimes even eat better in the woods with a bunch of not Puritans. Um, but there's this idea that people also think he's the devil because he's hanging out with Native Americans. Right. And they're like, oh, he learned all of his medical knowledge from them. That mm-hmm. must be, like, pure evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a strong association in a lot of literature from the time with Native Americans as the devil. And uh, that is, I think, not really addressed here like he is making fun of all of these other concepts of puritan morality but not so much the racism part right um, hawthorne seems to buy that a little bit yeah he probably does and did yeah. like that that wouldn't really surprise me so that is that is kind of worth noting um in this parable is that no matter how much he wants to say like i live in more enlightened times he also wrote this right before the civil war like 15 years right. before the civil war like not great so there is the, also the symbolism of like as uh, Chillingsworth, his hunch gets worse and he gets angrier. He also gets physically darker. Mm-hmm. Also not great. So, oh no, I didn't catch on yeah. to that one. It says like his like the soot from Satan's yeah, fire yeah, is yeah. blackening his face. Uh-oh. It's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what a great novel to read. I'm really enjoying it more than I thought I would. Well, that's good to know. Uh, Sarah, how do you feel on the reread? Um. I don't think I'm enjoying it as much as the first time around. <laughs> um, I think I'm doing, I have a lot more like grown worthy moments in mm. reading it. And most, mostly they have to do with Dimsdale because he really just drives me nuts. But um, overall, like I feel like it's not bad and it's like quick too. Yeah. It's so it's, quick. Yeah, I, I don't feel like I'm laboring over it. I think that's part of the reason why I'm enjoying it is it's not the 
trudge I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. I did notice that after I got through the custom house, which I was like, oh my god, I throw this in a fire. It. I loved it. After Chapter 1 through 10 was like really quick for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, so. I mean, it's basically, they're basically the same length. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More or less. Actually, I think they might be very close. Yeah. Um, all right. So that was the first half. We will finish it the next episode just in time. For Valentine's Woo! Day. That's what you want to read about on Valentine's Day, right? <laughs> Just, you know, adultery and, and sin and the devil and how <laughs> sex will ruin your life. Anyway, <laughs> that's what we'll do. We'll do next week. Uh, let us know what you think. If Tweet at us at CannonballsPod, uh, at C-A-N-O-N, balls with a Z, pod. Same handle on Instagram. Talk to us, read with us, and we will see you next week.